Excuse me, miss. Hold your horses. I'm Snapchatting my BFF, Blake. Sketchy old dude trying to talk to me. So ratchet. I'm not a sketchy old dude. I'm Mephistopheles. Like, um, like that song from Cats? No, I'm... God, I hate millennials. I'm like the one who makes bad things happen. Oh, like when I bought that red velvet cupcake and some cold brew, which are so good together. I'm like dead. But then I dropped the cupcake on the sidewalk. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag not. Exactly like that. Well, get away from me. I told him to get away. Not until you hear my offer. I can give you anything you want if you pledge your soul to me. Anything I want. Yes. Okay, Netflix and chill with Taylor Lautner. You barely even need me for that, but yes. What is that soul thing that you mentioned? Frankly, it's part of you that you barely even use. You won't notice it's gone. Will I still have Wi-Fi? So much Wi-Fi. Can I get extended battery life and Taylor Lautner? Yes, whatever. That's fine. And Josh Hutcherson for my friend Blake. She's all Mockingjay and stuff. Mm, no, Blake has to deal with me on her own. When did girls start being named Blake? Blake Lively. Duh. Weird old dude does not know Blake Lively. I am totes excited about Taylor Lautner. Okay, the rest of you just listen to these other sketchy old dudes. Did I mention I hate millennials? And now he's like the old guy in front of you at Starbucks who doesn't know what he wants. How could he not know what he wants at Starbucks? Mark Oppenheimer. <laughs> so I'm, this is Mark Oppenheimer uh, sitting in Colin McEnroe's chair. And I'm so, I'm so elated that at age 42, I've been promoted to one of the old guys. It's like Colin and I now exist in the same, right. in the same geriatric uh, uh, demographic group. Um, today's show is about Faust and the Faust legend, uh, the Faust myth in literature, in pop culture, and uh, in two weekends at the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. Um, my guests today are uh, Jan Hoggins, who's a senior research scholar in uh, at the Yale Divinity School and a lecturer in comparative literature at Yale. Uh, Professor Hoggins, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And um, our other uh, expert guest is, in fact, uh, Colin McEnroe. He's a radio host who sometimes hosts his own show. <laughs> and uh, and Colin, you will be doing a dramatic interludes for the Liszt symph uh, Faust Symphony at the HSO uh, next week. Is that right? That is correct. I wish that I had gotten to know Jan way before <laughs> I started this project. I would have. <laughs> so the impetus for this show today, aside from the fact that it's fun to talk Faust and Faustian bargains, uh, I think, is is that uh, there is this performance coming up at the HSO, and they're doing some really interesting uh, and creative things with uh, with Liszt's uh, Faust Symphony. So we're going to hear a little bit more about that in a few minutes, um, and we're also uh, might be joined by a third guest to talk about about the Faust legend and, and her updating of it if we have time. We'd also love to take your calls. Uh, we're at 860-275-7266. I'm particularly interested in hearing from any of you who believe you've made your own versions of a Faustian bargain. You know, are you sitting at a, at a desk thinking, I sold my soul for something, or looking across at your spouse thinking, I sold my soul for this. Uh, definitely do call us. But let's just start off by by throwing to Professor Hoggins and asking, so where does this legend come from? Uh, what is what is the deep history of, of Faust as a character in, in folklore and then in literature? Yeah, that's already interesting that you can even ask where does it come from. Um, as compared to other legends and myths, there really is some historical, uh, concrete historical reality 
um, behind it, and usually about Hamlet or Oedipus, we can't ask these questions. But uh, in this case, there is some, even though there's some disagreement. There's two people who vie for the uh, pride of place. Uh, one was born in uh, 1466 in the southwest of Germany, and the other one in 1480, also in the southwest of Germany. That's where the um, historical roots are located. Um, so one of them is called Johann Faust, and the other one is Georg Faust, and we don't really know who it is. Most likely that Georg person, um, and he was a student at the University of Heidelberg, uh, and then lived from uh, 1466 uh, to about 1540. Uh, we have nine or so written documents. So what did him. what did he do that then he became the subject of this Faust book? Yeah, he was a, basically a traveling. Uh, trickster. Um, you could call him an alchemist or a physician, but probably a quack or an astrologer is more um, more appropriate. Uh, some people called him a necromancer, a magician. He was in the tradition of he put himself into the tradition of the the, ma- the magi. He was a magus, um, a tradition that was a 15th century Italian, and then also later a German tradition of these uh, traveling. Um, uh, self-proclaimed um, philosophers. Uh, he was a master of self-promotion, really. You could say uh, that was his. That's how he made an income. But he, why did people think at some point did did the legend build up around him, around Georg or Johann, whichever of the Fausts yeah. it was? Why did the legend build up that that they had made a pact with the devil? Um, probably due to the Reformation uh, context around him. Um, for one thing, he himself made up this. Uh, this part of his story in order to attract more attention that would support his business, but maybe more importantly, uh, Luther and Melanchthon uh, and Melanchthon's students, so the primary reformers in Germany, they made him a topic of their sermons and table talks and writings and confronted his uh, diabolic black magic. <laughs> uh, so, um, so that's how he came. Uh, famous uh, because they con- they confronted him, um, uh, but probably uh, so that- that's what made him famous. But it had developed traction probably because really he personified the bifurcation, the split in in the age between uh, typical uh, uh, Renaissance scholar or, or uh, like Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci or Erasmus, uh, but at the same time he had he was seeking in dark places. Like so it, it was sort of it was the myth has always been about the perversion of higher learning of knowledge, right? Because then in the in in Christopher Marlowe's Doctor Faustus, uh, and then again in in Goethe's. Uh, two-part poem, right? Uh, Faust, the, the Faust character is a professor who then wants to, you know, having learned as, as much as he can, he wants even greater powers of learning, right? So it becomes this kind of mad professor who, who gets flies too close to the sun, in other words, right? Mad and transgressive, right? Um, going beyond uh, what is allowed. And um, then madness is a psychological ramification of that. But transgressing limitations to um, what we are allowed to know, especially um, astrological knowledge that we shouldn't seek, theological knowledge that we shouldn't seek, and um, um, that needed to be punished in Marlow, for example, right? There we have a, in the, in the, 
original German chapbook that collected the anecdotes that were floating around of 1587. Um, we already have Faust being damned at the end, and Marlow um, accepts that part. Um, the German Faust book was almost immediately translated into English. Marlow read it in Cambridge and wrote his version, and also has... Um, has Faust uh, condemned to eternal uh, damn, uh, suffering in hell, but uh, he gives him more of a tragic setup. Uh, there is some individual psychology, a quest for power that we can sympathize with. There is a heroic grandeur. Uh, there is some dignity in him that the German chapbook Faust doesn't have yet. And there is also this, this loneliness in him, this... Uh, forsakenness. So that's Marlowe's achievement. Right. Um, well, uh, and, and, and that makes him into, into a, suddenly a really tragic hero. Well, we end up with, with numerous versions down through the ages, right? And, and, and so we get to the latest version, Colin McEnroe's. Mm. <laughs> when I you, hear. So I hear. <laughs> so so, so uh, Colin, when, when you were... First of all, tell us the, the genesis of this project that you're doing with the Hartford Symphony Orchestra and, and then how you prepared for it and which versions you acquainted yourselves with. So, uh, yeah, they wanted to perform this not very frequently performed Liszt Symphony, the, the Faust Symphony. Uh, Liszt is really directly influenced by Goethe. They're I don't know, maybe about 40, 50 years apart uh, in terms of the work. Um, so it's it's in a very detailed way, anyway, Liszt's attempt to express uh, in in romantic music what he sees in Goethe. But it's the symphony itself is kind of a big lift uh, auditorially. And so the notion was, well, what if we could intersperse some spoken word stuff there? So I, I began constructing a series of different spoken word frameworks, uh, some of which worked better than others uh, to do this. But yeah, I, first of all, I totally wish that uh, I had taken Jan's course uh, before I got involved in all this, or at least met him and followed him around for five or six days, because that would have saved myself a lot of time and trouble. I like uh, the idea that just following him around, you would have absorbed oh, I, Faustiana. I just, it's, it's just <laughs> reflects off the tweed of his lapels. I, a, couple, a couple of things that I'd just like to point out and also ask Jan a little bit more about. One of them is, you know, this notion of self-promotion, that maybe it was good for the historical Faust, whichever one it was. Uh, I always went with Marty Faust. I thought he was the, the <laughs> template. But but whoever it is, it's, it's you know, provided that nobody's going to burn you or hang you, it's not a bad thing to have people think that you have this extraordinary set of not widely available powers. And it's it's come up, I mean, Paganini was said that he'd sold his soul for uh, his violin playing ability. Robert Johnson, uh, same thing as, you know, the famous blues man who, who made his pact with the devil. And, and like Paganini probably didn't invent that le legend, but did nothing to discourage it. So it's it can be really. There's good actually the legend that you sold your soul for your radio hosting powers, right. Colin. Yes, which <laughs> is, that was a bad deal. I should have asked for more than that. But um, you know, I guess also um, I, what I'd love to ask you about, Jan, a little bit is you know when you, we look at Marlowe, Marlowe is so slippery anyway, right? I mean, any yep. theory you have about Marlowe uh, can either be knocked down or supplanted by another equally persuasive theory about him. But what we do know is this is the the 16th century English dramatist who. Right. Dr. Faustus. Yeah, right? he, wrote, Just, he yeah. wrote this this tragical story of right. Dr. Faustus. But, I mean, it's hard to get a read on it, right? Because, I mean, we're sitting here at this incredibly fraught moment. You've got the Inquisition and the plague, you know, and the, the Reformation is still kind of congealing. Uh, and so there's a lot of anxiety yep. uh, uh, about predestination and what man's proper role in the cosmos might be. And it's all there in this kind of Cecil B. DeMille production where people who saw this play— 
occasionally would claim to see actual devils and demons on stage. That's how ramped up people's sensibilities were. But, you know, Jan, I'm assuming we don't really exactly know what Marlowe's overall gloss on this whole thing was, at least as it speaks to its historical context. Uh, no, that's the fascination of Marlowe versus the German chapbook. The German chapbook is very clear in its condemnation, and it um, really opens up this cleavage uh, between the quest for knowledge and then the uh, dogmatic, orthodox condemnation has to come down. It's a severe warning. In Marlowe, it's much more open, right? Right at the beginning, uh, the choir, uh, the chorus says, "I think the heavens conspired his overthrow." So it seems to be a bit of a setup of the poor man. Um, so we can sympathize with him, and he uh, he catches much more of our interest than the chapbook. Uh, Dr. Faustus uh, does, who is so clearly from the narrator's point of view um, put into um, his place. That chapbook is not so interesting in the psychology of Faustus so much, but in how it shows us the uh, rivalry between um, the the quest for knowledge and um, then the Christian estimation of the of that um, and 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 how it therefore portrays the trends that are going on in the 16th century. Now, on the one hand, we have uh, peasant wars and inquisition, as you're saying, witch burnings, the plague, uh, syphilis is a new disease, I guess. Uh, and on the other hand, we have the beginnings of modern science and technology. And um, the chapbook still comes down on one side in condemnation. But Marlowe opens that up and gives us more respect for that project that um, Dr. Faustus is involved in. Um, that makes him, because it's more ambivalent, makes him so much more fascinating for us. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you one more question about this? Because I'm, I'm fascinated to talk to somebody who actually has some expertise. You have to go this. tear your whole script up, yeah, but actually. As opposed to me. So, I mean, I feel it seems as though in Marlowe, Faust is given repeated opportunities to turn back, you know, to yeah. uh, to do something different. And that cast against the context, Oppie, of that moment when Calvinism is starting to congeal, you know, and, and Arminius is bringing up issues about whether there is, whether grace is resistible, whether man does have more capacity to guide his fate. I feel like that's one of the things that's being raised somehow in this script. Unfortunately, because we don't know whether Marlowe was like a spy for the Catholics or a spy against the Catholics or whatever, who knows what he was, but but he's clearly reacting to all that, I, I feel anyway. Yes, and uh, not only is he um, opening up this uh, panoply of positions that he wants to discuss uh, in the character of Dr. Faustus, but even in Mephistopheles himself, right? Mephistopheles is not the um, uh, purely satanic uh, destroyer, but really, um, for us, almost the more likable or um, the greater target of identification in how it is him who sheds tears for the erring human uh, Dr. Faustus, who is his victim at the same time. So um, that makes it, um, um, there is various positions. Um, it's not a black and white as in the chapbook, but exactly, he has various theological, philosophical uh, positions in the book that uh, we can't decide uh, among, but uh, you can still 
gets the relations, and that makes it interesting. I'm Mark Oppenheimer. We're talking about the uh, the Faust legend with Jan Hoggins, who teaches comparative literature at Yale, and with the great noted theologian Colin McEnroe, who in a, uh, a move of, of radio radicalism that will reverberate throughout uh, the public radio sphere, is my guest today as I sit in his chair. Um, it is true that Marlowe was incredibly slippery. Oh, and we need more theologians on the show. So if you want to tweet at us, uh, if you have a theological profundity about the Faust legend, you can tweet it to WNPR Colin. We're also taking your calls at 860-275-7266. I want to hear about the Faustian bargains that you've made. Um, the legend that I think most people know is not the Marlowe one, but actually, um, or they know the Marlowe legend, but we think of it as a Goethe work. Um, and and that might be because Goethe has risen up as a much, much more famous figure in Western literature than, than Marlowe. But um, could you say something, uh, Professor Hoggins, about the difference just plot-wise between um, the, the Marlowe play and then about 100 years later, or more actually, more. 200 years later, uh, 150 years later, the, yeah, the Goethe, the Goethe yeah. version. And then, of course, you know, in the next segment, we can talk about all the way down through like the Charlie Daniels version and the Damn Yankees version and the Lance Armstrong version. But tell us about Marlowe versus, versus Goethe. Yeah, it's interesting uh, uh, that you're having trouble dating it because <laughs> yes. um, he worked on it for 60 years, so it's hard to say when exactly. That was my problem. It wasn't just sheer ignorance. It was exactly. that I was trying to figure out where in my own in my own scholarly work I was dating it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as I had just um, stressed with Marlowe, how he's fixated on that character, that ambivalent character of Dr. Faustus, Goethe does something very different. Um, he invents, especially in the uh, last 25 years of his working on Faust, uh, a, a tr in, in fact, a triple frame of cosmic dimensions for Faust. And um, Faust now becomes an allegorical character. Um, he adds, uh, very different from Marlowe, a Gretchen tragedy, uh, so a love story now, um, and that enables him to provide structure in a very economical way with a strike of genius, how he sketched just, just six, seven scenes with Gretchen that give us an arc, and that arc provides the, um, uh, the support for that other uh, tragedy that's in Faust for, for Goethe, not just the Gretchen, the love tragedy, but the scholar's tragedy that we already know from Marlowe, but that has the problem of being really inherently without structure and limitations. It's just the striving scholar who wants to know more, more, more. And the Gretchen tragedy, uh, tragedy gives us a wonderful um, structure that then the scholar's tragedy can shape alongside. Um, the other, the third great invention of Goethe is, of course, we no longer have a pact, which he considers kind of dumb. After 24 years, um, we switch sides and you get <laughs> my soul. But now we have a wager. So that's a hypothetical process with a, future, with a futurity, if that's the word, with a futureness in it that is yet to be determined by the behavior of the contractual partner. So that makes it much more dynamic and interesting. Sure. And the, the fourth thing is Goethe goes back to salvation of Faust. Uh, because it's uh, enabled because of that cosmic frame he had designed and the gift of love that he can introduce to the Gretchen tragedy that Malo didn't have. So this makes it much richer, of course, and very different. It's not really an Aristotelian uh, classical or realistic drama anymore. It's an allegorical play that goes back to forms of drama that are much older from the Middle Ages um, and want to do something very, very different and show us something different about 
um, uh, humankind, right. not the individual agent who can make decisions. But now it's about the greater cosmos. Well, you had me at, at love story. So uh, I'm Mark Oppenheimer. <laughs> We're, I'm sitting in for Colin McEnroe as we talk about uh, the Faust legend. And we'll be right back after this break. I forgot to tell you something about Margaret Spencer. Well, what's that? She's dead. Oh, she's not. No, she's not. She's not? No, she's alive. Then why did you say that? Malice. I'm a liar. I do it the whole time. I can't help it. <laughs> Are you telling me that everything you've ever said is a lie? Everything I've ever told you has been a lie, including that. Including what? That everything I've ever told you has been a lie. That's not true. I don't know what to believe. Not me, Stanley. Believe me. <laughs> that is a clip from the 1967 version of Bedazzle, not the 2000 version, but the one with Dudley Moore as a as a Wimpy's restaurant employee who wishes to be more articulate and so sells his soul to Peter Cook, which is probably never a good idea. No. Uh, I'm Mark Oppenheimer uh, hosting the Colin McEnroe show. One of our guests today is, in fact, Colin McEnroe. Uh, hi, Colin. Hi. Hi. And he has uh, written some dramatic interludes that are going to be uh, performed with the Hartford Symphony Orchestra when they do Faust's, excuse me, Liszt's Faust Symphony, not Faust's Liszt Symphony. What are the dates of that, Colin? Uh, that'll be coming up Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of next weekend. Great. And we're also talking with Professor Jan Hoggins, who teaches comparative literature at Yale and knows a lot more about the Faust legend than either of us. Mm. Professor, are you still there? Yes. Oh, terrific. Um, so we are taking your calls as well at 860-275-7266. Um, I'm very interested myself in, in the question of, you know, what a Faustian bargain is, because I think that's how the term certainly comes down to me. I don't talk about Faust a lot, but I, I feel like I toss off the term Faustian bargain sometimes. And yet, if I actually press myself on it, I haven't the faintest idea how I would define it. It's one of those, you know it when you see it type things. Um, is this something that either of you has put any thought into, Colin? Well, I love the term that Jan used uh, in some of the preliminaries to the show, that we've developed a rather inflationary uh, idea <laughs> of what a Faustian bargain is. Uh, I couldn't think of a better adjective than that. That, that w whatever you think the Ur text is, whether it's Marlowe or, or, or Goethe or a chapbook or something, we, in, in terms of our understanding of this, we've departed from it. But Jan, I guess I'm, I'm thinking also that one of the qualities of this story is that, you know, if there are, are only six or seven real stories that are repeated endlessly, this is one of them. And it has elements of Icarus and Daedalus. It has elements of Prometheus. It has elements of the Garden of Eden story. You know, it's, it's an extension of that. So that people tend to project I mean, Goethe made it his own and made it really, really different from Marlowe. You know, it was just his expression uh, of German romantic thought and spirit at that moment. And so maybe everybody has the right to be inflationary because this is this very elastic thing that gets used all kinds of ways anyway. Yes, and that makes it uh, so uh, fruitful because we um, need to adapt it to the needs of the pressures and the demands of our current situation. And an artist who now uh, wants to work with it has a panoply of riches to look back at and uh, pick and choose and consider and maybe make use of. 
So the tradition is, of course, building um, on itself. It is uh, probably the richest uh, tradition in modernity as far as uh, output is concerned. If you've ever been on uh, Wikipedia or Google and you put in something like uh, works based on Faust, it's a never-ending list. It's insane. <laughs> it's all a, genres. But, 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 but that actually goes to the point that there's been a kind of creep of the idea of what's based on Faust and what's yes. not. And so you know there are certain things that are included there where it's just like a movie about some guy who made a really bad decision. Like, you know, it's sort of it's like irony. It's gotten, you know, it's moved out of an, any actual meaning uh, into just, well, you know, we're looking for a placeholder term. So some of the things that Wikipedia list is having based on the Faust legend, I looked at and said, well, that was just a movie about a guy who, like, was really hoping for the best and it didn't work out that way. And instead, he really wishes afterwards that he hadn't done that. But it's by no means the case that these are all stories of someone making a specific pact or bet or bargain or sale with a, a demonic figure or a demonic force, right? I mean, would you guys argue, Colin McEnroe and, and Jan Hoggins, that we should restrict it in some sense? to so, What's the key element? Does there have to be a deal involved, a bet, <laughs> a ple- something signed in blood? What do we need for it to be a Faustian bargain, an, an echt Faustian bargain? I love how we're the commissioners of Faust. You're the, you're the, we get <laughs> to make decisions. You're the commissioners of The truth is that no one is going to listen to us anyway. People are <laughs> just going to use this word any damn way they want. True, but, true. But yeah, but I, I think, you know, in order for it to, to really follow the idiom, there, yeah, at minimum, I don't know what Jan w- would say, but I, at minimum, it's, yeah, there has to be a, some kind of demonic presence there, uh, and and there has to be some kind of wager. I, I feel as though Goethe really changed things around in exactly the way, Jan, that you were saying before, which is, you know, he really lets Faust bar- negotiate quite a bit. So, as you were saying, there's kind of a Hollywood back end on this deal, and there's like, <laughs> You know, I mean, there's there's no more of this. You just have to take whatever terms the devil offers you. You know, I mean, and, and that's, I think, very German romanticism, too. So, I mean, that kind of wrecked the template. I mean, it opened up all kinds well, of new possibilities. Well, to, po- to the point where one of the things we were all talking about when we were talking about this show as a contemporary example of a Faustian bargain was uh, was Lance Armstrong. And we have, we have a little clip that will put that into, into perspective for us. This is my body. And I can do whatever I want to it. I can push it, study it, tweak it, listen to it. When it comes to the doping, would you do it again? Everybody wants to know what I'm on. What am I on? If you take me back to 1995. I'm on my bike, busting my ass six hours a day. What are you on? When it was completely and totally pervasive, I'd probably do it again. People don't like to hear that. So that was that was a brilliant piece of radio art. That was a, a Jonathan McNichols mashup of uh, of an old Nike commercial with Lance Armstrong and him being grilled on whether or not he was doping, which in fact he was. Um, Colin, why is it that we think of Lance Armstrong, whose bargain was I'm going to do a lot of drugs to win a lot of races, as have, as having made a Faustian bargain? Well. I- I think maybe one part of it that I left out from the fact pattern, and and I would, again, defer to Jan on this, but but maybe one thing that's consistent in almost all tellings, except Dudley Moore, um, (laughs) is that the person we're talking about is prodigious to begin with, right? That, you know, that there aren't a lot of Faust stories where Faust is just the schlemiel. Right. He's never a total loser at the start. That's interesting. He's he's always kind of awesome to begin with. He just wants to get more awesome. He's, He's already, you know, four or five rungs up the ladder from... From most everybody else, he just wants to go higher, and and I think with uh, with Armstrong and a lot of other people like that, it, it is that 
I think the other way that the Armstrong story has maybe a little bit of a resonance with Goethe is that kind of notion of collateral damage, too. I mean, you know, Gretchen is such horrible collateral damage uh, in, in Goethe's Faust. And there's this way in which Armstrong illustrates the, the fact that you just wind up taking all kinds of people down with you, too. It's really not just your deal. You think it's your deal. That's one of the illusions for Faust is, you know, it, no, this is my deal. I'm making a deal. This is my business. Get out of my business. Except that it isn't because there, there, there's dominoes that get knocked over. Yeah, Professor Hoggins, when you when you teach Faust uh, to your students, how contemporary do you bring it, and and you know where do you where do you land? What's the the last iteration? He doesn't, he doesn't use Charlie Daniels. I've you don't use the Charlie. The Devil that. went down to Georgia. That's not the light motif of the whole syllabus. We play we play with these more uh, recent uh, instance instantiations of uh, of the Faust constellation, but I the last major piece I work with is uh, Thomas Mann's Doctor Faustus from 1947. Sure, sure. Um, not yeah, the, not uh, the classic Ralph Macchio movie, Crossroads? Uh, mm. they, you wouldn't believe how much <laughs> there is in pop culture. And, uh, <laughs> so I'm just um, lifting my arms in self-defense and <laughs> can't cope with the... Uh, with the onslaught of uh, Faust culture, also in uh, in uh, car- comic uh, books, in music, in pop music, in uh, lots of subcultures that you almost don't want to know about. Um, so it becomes a, that would be a whole different course. I'm really trying to deal with um, the major building blocks of the tradition and uh, can't follow it all the way into the intricate uh, uh, incarnations that we have to witness now. Um, but what Colin was saying about the uh, demonic, right, uh, it requires that a, a demonic force needs to be contracted with, would require uh, for Lance Armstrong to count into the picture a redefinition. And I think that's uh, that's what uh, automatically almost becomes obvious when you follow the tradition. Um, and that's what you have to do because the Faustian constellation isn't a logical concept that falls from the sky, but something that historically develops. So originally, yes, there were demons and uh, or satanic powers under devils that um, Faust uh, contracts with um, because he is that ambitious, excellent individual who wants even more, as Colin was saying, uh, but can't get it by himself. He needs that extra help. And uh, then uh, in the original uh, setup, that's uh, forbidden power, uh, demonic power, and therefore he gets uh, divine, he pulls the divine punishment onto himself. But already in Goethe, we see how the whole religious uh, uh, imagery that he uses to a greater extent, much greater than Marlowe, for example, even a much greater extent than the chapbook, which is 200 years older, it's completely metaphorical and uh, 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 could be read as uh, uh, just um, exterior appearances in, uh, um, of um, something that could be read as either metaphysical or even as psychological. And this increases into the 20th century, where really Faust, um, that's already with, with Goethe, but in the 20th century, Faust does not transgress against divine commandments any longer, but um, the nature of his violation gets more and more um, secular, internalized, psychologized. And so eventually, Faust doesn't transgress a law that's imposed on him from the outside, but rather he or she uh, transgresses rules that are his own. 
that he violates values that are fundamental to his own identity and to his moral integrity. And now you got Lance Armstrong, of course, um, from at least our point of view, maybe not his but own. Even, but even as recently as just Damn Yankees, I mean, there, yep. the, the, the violation is just mistreating his wife, right? He's going to go off and be a slugger and, and take the Washington senators to the, to the title, uh, but has to abandon his wife to do it. And so it's not, it's not about... You know, I mean, that is sinful, but it's not about a pact with the, the devil, per se. It's yeah, right. But I, I think what um, what Jan is getting at is, to, to me, the, one of the most important things here, which is, OK, so starting in the early 20th century, you have, you know, what Philip Reef would eventually call the triumph of the therapeutic. So the Faust is always this question, why are people so bloody minded? I mean, not for nothing in 47 is Thomas Mann writing about Faust. We know why he's, you know, asking this question. Why are people so bloody minded? Well, you know, at a certain point, it's either, you know, a Freudian model or a Marxist. Marxist model, you know, because people aren't that interested in talking about God and the devil anymore. Um, but I would argue that that the part of it that is supernatural, that is God and the devil, it's in our intellectual DNA. It's in our folk memories. So that when we see a Lance Armstrong or a Jimmy Swagger or a pick your example, we look at these people and we go, I, we kind of go ding, 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 ding. I know exactly <laughs> what that is, you know, and maybe I don't express it theologically, but somehow or other, right. at some preconscious level, there is a theological understanding of it. Um, professor, I know you have to go teach at 144 and 30 seconds or something, so we, we have to let you go, as my understanding, which, but we're sorry to do it. So uh, you'll, my, you'll... my paper's going to be a little bit late. Uh, <laughs> the dog ate it. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, professor Jan Hoggins, um, his course uh, in comparative literature at Yale is he wants us to announce that it's open admission to anyone who listens to this show, right? They can all come get a tutorial in Faust from you, right? Anybody's welcome. Anybody's <laughs> welcome. All right, thanks for joining us, Professor. Thank you. All right, take care. Um, Colin, if I'm not mistaken, mistaken, uh, you fought to keep God in your script, right? I mean, wasn't there some discussion? Weren't there people suggesting, like, do we really need the God element in in this dramatization of the Liszt symphony? Right. So, well, first of all, one thing that Jan didn't have time to talk about is another thing that Goethe does for the first time is he starts it out with this kind of recapitulation of Job, where God and Mephistopheles are like, hanging around doing some paramutual, paramutual wagering and some <laughs> trash talk and stuff like that. And what about, have you considered my servant Faust? Uh, and and I got very intrigued by that and very intrigued by uh, like when I, by the first version of this thing that I wrote, I kept I had God and Mephistopheles having these conversations. Um, and as we rolled along there, I mean, the, the purpose of this seemed to be more the interpolation of, of modern you know, news-based material that sort of echoed that Faustian fact pattern. And there was a little moment. I mean, it wasn't like people said, hey, get God out of this. No more God. But uh, it wasn't, there wasn't anything like that. But I, there was one moment where I actually did send an email to somebody else on the team saying, if God goes, I go. Because I feel like— <laughs> You just wanted to write. You right. just wanted to, to type that. <laughs> That's right. And, but I feel like if you take God out of this, if you take the theological part of it out of it, it's sort of like pulling the battery pack out of C-3PO and he just kind of slumps over. <laughs> I think this story slumps over. I think over. that's what I was getting at when I said, well, these days it's like anyone who made a bad decision. Like, you know, Lance Armstrong is a, right. a dishonest dude who does drugs. It's a Faustian bargain. Well, no, it's it's he just lied. I mean, by that by that logic, my kids are striking Faustian bargains all the time. Like, oh, if we lie to dad and say we didn't have dessert already, we can have second dessert. That's not a Faustian bargain. No. That's just just being, you know, an obnoxious little kid. Um a couple days ago, I had a chance to chat with Freya Matthews, who's an adjunct professor at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, where she teaches environmental philosophy. She's the author of Ardea, which is a philosophical novella that deals in part with the Faust uh, legend. And here's a bit of that conversation. 
Uh, Freya, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. This new novella of yours is its sort of an updating of the Faust legend. Just tell us about it. What What is the plot? The idea with Ardea was to set the story of Faust rolling again in a contemporary setting, a 21st century setting, um, in order to test the archetype of the self that I see as at play in Goethe's Faust against contemporary conditions, I mean, conditions now, particularly the condition of environmental holocaust on our planet. So in your, in your philosophical, in your, in your philosophy classes, you know, I mean, Faust, I think, is generally taught in, in literature classes, right, in, in German studies or depending on the version of it in other kinds of literature classes. But, but you're a philosopher. And so I'm curious, um, do you feel like the, either the, the Marlowe version or the Goethe version, I mean, is one of these to you a, a central text of, of philosophy? Is that how we should be reading it? Yes. I think that the way that Goethe represented Faust in his play, he provided a very powerful underpinning and legitimation for the project of modernity, of modernization, of progress, ultimately of development. That You can see that project as having originated in the scientific revolution of the 17th century and the age of enlightenment that followed it, where, you know, in Newtonian science, you, you had um, a view of the universe as just root matter in motion, right. which was very different from uh, earlier conceptions of the universe in, in the West and elsewhere. Uh, and, and that led to an instrumental attitude to the natural world, that the natural world was there for us to use as we saw fit. And so, you know, with science and then with the technological industrial revolution that followed, that's exactly what happened. Nature became radically exploited for human benefit. But then that is a pretty grim, fruit and blind, <laughs> you know, that instrumentalism that comes out of the raw science of the 17th century. And so I see what he's doing in the Faust play as, as providing a legitimation for that project of modernization and instrumentalization that had begun in the scientific revolution. I couldn't help but notice that in the middle there's you interpolate that discussion about the, the historical religions and how and the prophets and how you know Abraham comes along and then is superseded or or added to by Jesus who's then superseded or added to by Muhammad it seemed to me I don't know if that was your voice speaking there but it seemed to me that you insert in the middle a pretty strong um, indictment of traditional religions as because you feel like they or the character feels that they that they close themselves off to subsequent revelations when they should stay open to a kind of ongoing openness to new prophets over time. Like, what was the point of that? Yeah, well, I think that environmental ethics, which is what Ardea teaches, right. is, can serve as a kind of bridge between the realm of, um, you know, philosophical, scientific reason and the realm of traditional religion in that environmental ethics calls for an ethic of respect and care for all of life. And if you dig down into most of the major religions, you do find um, a notion of law or way 
that does reference creation mm-hmm. in, in a standard. You know, we, we are called to call for creation or, or however that's figured. And so in that long discussion about religion, it's like, well, we have a way back to that core of religions now through, um, say, you know, environmental ethics or, or mm-hmm. uh, whatever you know, that we're looking through. And that might help us to reanimate those religions and to see how they've become kind of um, stuck, fixated in, at the moment of a particular historical revelation. I'd like to thank you. We're out of time, but I wanted to thank you for joining us. And I would encourage people to go uh, to check out your, your philosophical novella, Ardea. I've been talking with Freya Matthews, professor of environmental philosophy at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Thanks again, professor. Thanks for having me. All right, bye-bye. Today's show would have been so great if it weren't for that boring guest who just went on and on. It was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf, with assistance from Lucifer. I wasn't supposed to say that, maybe. Our intern is Hazel Cologne, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Dudley Moore. Subscribe to all of our shows on iTunes or any podcast platform. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes to Get Out. And now, back to Mark. This is Mark Oppenheimer sitting in Colin McEnroe's chair and staring at the beautiful punum of Colin McEnroe, uh, who is a guest today. We're talking about the Faust legend, and uh, he's done some work on Faust, which we'll get to in in just a moment. Um, the first thing I wanted to say uh, before we get to that is that in in return for my the favor I'm doing him of hosting him, he's just promised to host uh, my podcast, Unorthodox, uh, sometime. So he just what a Jewish podcast needs just a, a Gentile po- host. Well, you know, you've been the Gentile of the Week twice. You're the only ever <laughs> returning Gentile of the Week, and so it's time to promote you. Uh, I also wanted to say that we we did get a tweet from from Nicarus, who tweeted at us recently. A Polish video game company made a game based on the Polish retelling of Faust, Pan Twardowski. So I I have no idea if that's true, but. <laughs> No, it's always true that whatever you're talking about, somebody made a video game of it, right? Right, right. And, well, you, and you don't know about that because, like, who knows about video who games? Who knows about video I mean, apparently it's the, a bigger industry than anything, right. but I'm not, I'm not part of it. Um, we were talking about the Faust legend. If you have more uh, Faust trivia for us, you can tweet it to WNPR Colin. Um, what percentage, Colin, of, of people who know the Faust legends do you think know that the name Gretchen comes from Goethe's Faust? Uh, n- n- almost not. It's like yeah. right up there with the fact that Laura is from Petrarch. I mean, there are these names right. that people give their kids, and they just they don't know. Well, you know, as we were discussing before the show, I mean, Kesara Sara appears in Marlowe's. In Marlowe's, it's Faust. like the, uh, probably the first time it appears in an English script, anyway. anyway. As well as as Helen being the face that launched Which a thousand, thousand ships, ships is yeah. from Marlowe's is from Marlowe's Faust. So this actually brings us to the, you recently, as as we've been discussing wrote some dramatic, inter- is it right to call them dramatic interludes? I don't know what to call He wrote dra- I certainly want to object to Dramatic interludes like that. that are going to um, appear in the Hartford Symphony Orchestra's uh, performance of, of Liszt's A Faust Symphony, which is uh, March 10th, 11th, and 12th. Um, so 
what was that like for you? First of all, are you a classical music fan? Do you, do you spend any time with Liszt if you're not being paid to spend time with Liszt? Um, I think people who are classical music fans don't always find their way to this particular symphony. But first of all, I've worked with the symphony a lot uh, on other kinds of projects. Never anything quite as serious as this. Uh, I've worked with Carolyn Kwan, uh, the uh, conductor, uh, on other things, usually outdoors, uh, <laughs> where you feel as though maybe this, the pressure isn't quite as tight as it might be in a concert hall. But um, yeah, I, when they first approached me about this, um, and, and maybe this is sort of a way of, of looking also at Faust as a almost subgenre. Like the first thing you want to do, the first thing everybody wants to do, starting with John Milton, people started to realize that the devil has all the good lines, right? So the first thing everybody wants to do is write Mr. Applegate to write Mephistopheles, <laughs> right. right? This this is the, so the first thing I did. I came to the first meeting. I'd already written, you know, this pretty funny. You know, sketch De- with devilishly with, funny. Yeah, with Mephistopheles being interviewed on sixty minutes, or I don't know, I can't remember what it was, but you know, because that's the first thing you want to do. That's the most fun thing, uh, and and in a way, I had to sort of. Well, I mean, now Mephistopheles does not appear on stage in any of the the dramatic interludes or whatever they are. At the end, God does appear on stage. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> uh, I we're the the actress who's playing God is. Uh, an African-American actress. I started writing God for that, just in my mind. In your mind, a black woman was God. Yeah, and in my mind, a black woman was God. So, um, but I mean, you know, the, we've we've been through a lot of iterations of this, and it is a collaboration among the director, Eric Ort, and Carolyn Kwan and me. It's not just me. Well, it does seem to be this endlessly fruitful myth in a way that, for example, you know, there are lots of stories, lots of Renaissance-era stories like you know, Hamlet is not endlessly fruitful in that way. There aren't there aren't fifty thousand iterations of Hamlet. There's a few, but there aren't. Joe you know, Lieberman. <laughs> I was going to say Tom Stopper, but you say Joe <laughs> Lieberman. But it does seem to always have this relevance. And in fact, we're living in this moment right now where it's getting trotted out in political discourse. Um, for example, there are people who feel that the vote that they cast in the last election may in fact be um, Faustian. Let's let's listen to a little bit of tape. We voted for Trump because we were fed up with the politics as it is. We're fed up with the government and all those elected officials who were elected to serve the people, but they're really only serving themselves. He said he was going to drain the swamp. Now he's filling it with alligators like Mnuchin. I was sick, disgusted. This is wrong. We're angry and we're watching him. Who knew that a British lady? Right. <laughs> why is that Trump? She voter? didn't vote on Brexit, but she voted <laughs> why on. Is the- that- <laughs> so I mean, how does the metaphor even work there? Who is Mephistopheles? Who struck a bargain with whom? If that's a, tr- a Faustian bargain. Well, as we were saying with Jan, I mean, you can sort of set this up any way you want. I think the way it's been set up most compellingly for me is by people who who say, well, I think Mike Pence is a potential Faustian figure. He clearly <laughs> doesn't believe a lot of the things that Donald Trump believes. He's he's much more of a conventional, you know, arch conservative Republican. Right. And and he was offered something. He was offered something by Mephistopheles, either in the form of uh, of Donald Trump or Steve Bannon. I'm going to go Steve Bannon. <laughs> 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 well, isn't it? Who's the one? Who's the community? Is, is Stephen Miller? Who's Jason Miller? Who's Stephen Miller? Which is the young Duke graduate who everyone has hated since the he was born? St- St- Stephen, Stephen Miller. Miller. I yeah. mean, he really does look, you know, he looks devilish. I think it's it's fair to say. Like he would come up and whisper something to your ear, and and the offer would be. I mean, it's sort of like the Turkish delight in C.S. Lewis. I mean, it it hooks you. You can't say no to it, and um, you know, and there you are. And before you know it, you're you're in the West Wing with with Stephen Miller. Um, 
I guess I would ask, where do you see the myth? Do you have an idea of where the myth goes from here? I mean, we have this evolution in which it's gotten less godly, in which it's gotten you know more Freudian, more internalized. The bargain is often with yourself or your own worst natures. Like, what's the end point of all this, Colin? I, and that's a really interesting question, and I wish I had this incredibly glib answer to it. I, <laughs> I, 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 I think I think the reality is that it, it's this because it's elastic, because it's inflationary. It, it will surface in every possible situation. You know, I mean, Stephen King always says that horror is about whatever you're anxious about at the moment, which is why we're all going to see Get Out. Uh, <laughs> you know, wh- wh- and I think Faust is a lot like that too. Whatever the anxieties of the moment were, they were different for Marlowe uh, in 1600 than they were for for Goethe 200 years later, uh, whatever's going on right now, there'll be a Faustian explanation for it. Do you feel that you've made any Faustian bargains in, in your own life, Colin McEnroe? <laughs> I think I've made nothing but Faustian bargains. But I just haven't bargained very effectively. I said uh, in a different interview that uh, I put my soul up for sale it's in 2008. It sat on the market there for, were two, no takers. for two, yeah, two years. There were, there were no takers. Kept lowering the price. <laughs> <laughs> I barely broke even on this. I think this sounds like an amazing production. It's going to be at the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. It's uh, featuring Carolyn Kwan as, as the conductor and Eric Ortz, the artistic director. Uh, the actors are, Christ- are Crystal Dickinson and Ward Duffy, but the author of the dramatic interludes uh, based on the Faust legend uh, are by one Colin P. McEnroe. Is it P? No, but I like that. I just figure Irish is probably Patrick. <laughs> What's your middle name, it's Colin? W. Colin W. McEnroe. Uh, it's March 10th, 11th, and 12th. I'm Mark Oppenheimer. It's been my pleasure to sit in for Colin McEnroe on The Colin McEnroe Show talking about the Faustian bargain. And Colin, we'll see you next time. How you say you will mix the say you don't understand Well hold your head up It happens to every other man You see love is funny It'll do these things to you Uh, I would sell my soul for some extra dill pickles on a sandwich. Mm, did somebody say they're looking for a deal? No, no, a, a dill. Ideal? A dill. A dill? A dill. You're looking for a dill pickle? Yes, a dill pickle. Oh, sorry. No, I hate pickles. <laughs>